0: Hello, welcome to the Sermons podcast of Horizon Church in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We want to help people connect with God and connect with each other. If you'd like to know more about us, you can go to our website at horizonconnect.org. Enjoy.
1: All right, hey, would you grab your Bibles? Now, uh, I will put what we're going to read on our slides, as is always the case, on our screens. But I will want to show you some things in your Bibles where we're going, and I'll tell you where we're at it in a bit. But just grab your Bibles, or if you you know if you have it on your phone, whatever. Uh, just um, kind of be ready to look at that in a couple minutes. But I want to pray, and then we will uh, dive in. Okay. God, thank you for the fact that you are a good and a faithful God to us, even in the midst of times of turmoil and difficulty and hardship. God, I'm grateful that we can always trust you to be not only a good leader, but a a leader who is faithful to us, and a leader to whom we not only owe our allegiance and our love, but also our obedience. God, this morning I want to pray that we will be looking to you as a leader who's faithful even in, in grief, and you intend to lead us through grief in a positive way, and God, Uh, I pray this morning that you'd be helping us to kind of wrap our minds and our hearts and our souls around grief and how to do it well. God, when we pay attention to your word, I pray that uh, we'll be able to trust that what we're learning from your word is ultimately from you. God, if I say anything off track or that's not accurate, thank you, God, that I can trust that your spirit present in all of our lives, that you'll keep us from being influenced the wrong way. And God, I also thank you that you take truth from your word, and through the power of your Spirit, you're in the process of transforming us into the kind of people you want us to be. And it turns out that's the kind of people we want to be as well. So thank you for that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, back in, in back in 1998, uh, 21 years ago, actually 22 years ago now, uh, almost exactly, right about this time of the year, 1998, my family moved from East Greenville. Where I had been a pastor uh, in East Greenville, I had been a pastor there for 10 years, and we lived in East Greenville for 10 years, and we moved in 1998 from East Greenville to Allentown. And for our family, that was a really, really exciting time. Uh, first of all, we were getting a chance to finally buy a house, which you know was the very first house, our one and only house, probably the only house we'll ever own. And it was something that we were really, really looking forward to and excited to do, something we'd actually been working on and hoping to do for, for a couple of years. And we finally got to do it, to buy a house. Now, at the same time, when we moved in 98 from East Greenville to Allentown, we were also leaving behind an entire decade of our lives, 10 years. And you don't get more than seven, eight decades or so. And that was one entire decade that we were leaving behind. That was the only place that my kids had ever known. They were leaving behind their friends, they were leaving behind their schools, they were leaving behind memories of the only house that they had ever lived in, the only church that they'd ever been a part of. And we were leaving behind, Don and I, we were leaving behind friends uh, who had become exceptionally dear to us. We were also leaving behind a church that, uh, into which we had literally poured our blood, sweat, and tears. And so when you, in our denomination, the denomination I'm a part of, when you get transferred from one church to another, that reassignment happens literally overnight. It happens like instantaneously. I said goodbye to one church on one day, and then the very next day, I said hello to another church. And there are some really good reasons And there's some upsides to that kind of uh, transfer that happens overnight. Some of the upsides are, you know, pastors always have, uh, churches always have pastors. They're never without a pastor. Pastors always have jobs. Um, I've never had, I I was thinking about this, I have never had one single day since my mid-teenage years when I have been without a job. Not one single day in all those years that I've been without a job. And as a result of that, Um, I've never been without a paycheck, except for the, you know, some of the early months of Horizon and and except for one or two periods of time when particular treasurers of churches were not happy with me for one reason or another, I've never been without a paycheck. And that's a really, really good thing, an upside. But there's a downside to that kind of instantaneous transition from one church to another. And the downside is something that is often hidden in this kind of lifestyle. And that is, the downside is that nobody gives any thought to uh, to actually grieving what you have lost and what you've left behind. And honestly, at that time, because I was a relatively young pastor back in 1998, I, I didn't even know that grieving was a necessary thing. But I actually found out that it was necessary and I found out the hard way. Uh, During the first couple weeks in the new church where I was assigned in Allentown, there are days when I would show up in my office and I would sit at my desk and I would feel absolutely lost. Now, I have never been a person that is given to feeling sad, so I can't say that I felt sad in any way. Lost is simply the best way that I could describe it. There were days that I would sit there and the room I was sitting in would would actually start feeling like it was spinning or going back and forth. And I didn't feel sick in any way. I didn't have vertigo. I didn't feel sick to my stomach. But everything would just spin or go back and forth. And some days it actually felt like it was hard to hold my head still or hard to hold my eyes still because everything was just bouncing. Some days my heart would race. Most days I found that I couldn't concentrate on anything. And if there was another person in my office or if I was out visiting somebody, I found that I couldn't even pay attention for more than a few seconds to what that other person was saying. I just felt lost. I didn't feel particularly sad, I wasn't sick, I wasn't anxious, just lost. And then that summer, in the middle of that summer of 1998, Michael W. Smith came to Six Flags in New Jersey to do a concert. And as some of you know, my brother is the keyboard player for Michael W. Smith, so if he's ever in the area, Jimmy's able to get us VIP tickets for his concerts. Which, by the way, I know that that's the reason some of you are my friends. And I don't hold that against you. Don't feel badly that I know that secret about you, because the truth is, that's why I keep sending Christmas cards and birthday cards to my brother. So don't feel bad about it. But anyway, <clears throat> we had it. we got tickets to the Six Flags amusement Park. We got tickets to the concert. We had a lovely day with our kids, riding the rides, and we got to do what we usually do. We went backstage and met the band. And then came concert time. And I will never forget that evening, sitting on a grassy hillside, looking down at the band. And in the middle of the concert, Michael W. Smith started singing this sappy little song that he has probably sung a gazillion times. It's the song everybody wants him to sing, and I'm pretty sure that if they're singing this song in heaven when Michael arrives, he's going to be pretty sure he's in the wrong place, because I'm sure he's sick of it. But you probably know the song if you're a fan, and you know how the words go. He started singing, friends are friends forever. And something broke inside of me, and I could actually feel it break. And I said out loud to no one in particular, No, that's not true. And I had to get up and I had to leave and stifle some ugly sobs. And I very suddenly knew what had been wrong with me I was grieving. I was grieving what I had lost, and I didn't know it, and I didn't know how to do it well. And all human beings, every human being, we need to process our grief, and when we don't do it well, bad things happen to us. In fact, you may not know this, but grief is so important. There is an entire book of the Bible devoted entirely to just grief. And there are not many books in the Bible that are devoted to just one subject, but there's a book of the Bible devoted to just the subject of grief. Now, it's the book in our Bibles entitled Lamentations, and Lamentations is a book, five chapters long, devoted entirely to grief. It's written for the purpose of helping us grieve. Now, the truth is, we don't know who wrote this book. Tradition says it was written by Jeremiah, which explains why it's placed in our Bibles where it is, right next to the book named for the prophet Jeremiah. Honestly, I don't know that it matters who wrote it, but the book is written to grieve the loss of a nation. In 589 BC, Babylon laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a walled city, and that siege lasted for at least two years, maybe longer. And what went on inside those walls for the next two years is simply too horrible to imagine. Imagine what you would do if you were locked inside your home for two years. What you would eat, what you would drink, what you would do with the dead bodies when people died. It was simply catastrophic evil. And then after a two-year siege in probably 587, maybe 586, the city of Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. And the kingdom of Judah, which is all that was left of the ancient kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah simply ceased to exist. And this book of Lamentations is a record of that grief. So, Find in your Bibles that book of Lamentation. You don't have to f- read these next couple verses or find them because I'm going to be all over a little book, but just find the book because there's something I want you to see in a book in, in a minute. But let me read to you some of the grief from the book of Lamentations. It opens this way Jerusalem, once so full of people, is now deserted. She who was once great among the nations now sits alone like a widow. She sobs through the night, her tears stream down her cheeks. The roads to Jerusalem are all in mourning, for crowds no longer come to celebrate the festivals. The city gates are silent. Her priests groan, her young women are crying. How bitter is her fate? Jerusalem's gates have sunk into the ground. Her kings and princes have been exiled to distant lands. Her law has ceased to exist. Her prophets receive no more visions from the Lord. The leaders of once beautiful Jerusalem now sit on the ground in silence. They are clothed in burlap and throw dust on their heads. The young women of Jerusalem hang their heads in shame. I have cried until the tears no longer come. My heart is broken. My spirit is poured out in agony as I see the desperate plight of my people. The elders no longer sit in the city gates, the young men no longer dance and sing. Joy has left our hearts, our dancing has turned to mourning. The gardens garlands have fallen from our heads our hearts are sick and weary and our eyes grow dim with tears Now I know that there's probably a few of you thinking you know our, our world right now is really in need of some hope and some good news So you're wondering why I'm choosing to be such a downer and talk about grief Well, for the same reason that I wish someone had talked to me about grief in the summer of 1998. When we don't grieve well, bad things happen. And there is so much right now that has been lost, so much that has been lost that needs to be grieved. Lost lives. Lost time lost connections, lost jobs, lost businesses, lost vacations, lost weddings, lost hugs, lost funerals, lost graduation parties, lost proms, lost dream trips, lost retirement parties, lost July 4th fireworks, lost summer plans, Lost birthday parties for people who turned 100 or 90 or 12. Lost education. Lost opportunity. There is just so much that has been lost that needs to be grieved. And when we don't grieve well, bad things happen. There's a short little book in our Bibles named for a woman, uh, Ruth. Ruth had a mother-in-law named Naomi, and Naomi comes from a Hebrew word that means pleasant. When the book of Ruth opens, Naomi has um, her husband die. And then 10 years go by, and both of Naomi's only sons die. And with nothing left but a single faithful daughter-in-law, Ruth, Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem, the hometown of her family. And as she's arriving in Bethlehem, she meets some old friends that she hasn't seen in years. And they get giddy with excitement and they start yelling, is it really you, Naomi, is it really you? And Naomi responds with a frown in her voice. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. It's a Hebrew word that means bitter. Call me bitter. For the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. Bitterness is a side effect of grief improperly done or maybe not done at all. And I've known bitter people. I know some now. And maybe you do too. Maybe it's you. How I wish we could grieve well. You know, there's a great story in John chapter 1 of of what happened after the first couple days after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus. And maybe you remember there's this kind of strange little episode in John chapter 21 where Peter plummets precipitously into peril. Uh, Peter had uh, been watching from the courtyard when Jesus was arrested and then being tried, and he was being beaten. And Peter, standing out in the courtyard, Peter was questioned three times if he knew this fellow. And Peter denied three times that he had ever even met Jesus, that he never knew him. Three times he denied it. And then on the third occasion, Peter noticed that Jesus had been watching him all along. And Peter ran away weeping bitterly. Now, Peter has lost multiple things in that whole encounter. Even though John chapter 21 happens after the resurrection, what we know is that none of the disciples were able to kind of wrap their brains around what was going on. Even though Jesus was back, they were all thinking that their dreams were shattered, that, that they couldn't figure out why he was alive. They just knew that all their dreams were gone. So in addition to his dreams, Peter lost his courage. He'd lost his self-esteem. I think Peter even lost hope. And so in John chapter 21, Peter just says very simply, I'm going fishing. And this is not some overnight fishing trip where he hopes to just calm down and have a little bit of fun. This is what I call rebound fishing. Because Peter had been a fisherman who left his nets to follow Jesus. And now Peter is in rebound, going back to what he had left. And I know that we've all seen people who rebound after one failed relationship and they bounce way too quickly into the second failing relationship. I've known pastors who leave behind really, really bad church situations. And they rebound way too quickly, either into another church situation, or sometimes they rebound into the next available job, just so that they can have a job. And usually that kind of rebound is followed by despair and sadness and this sense of having lost a calling from God. Now I know why we rebound like that. I know why we jump from one failed thing very quickly into the next. We do it to avoid pain. We do it to avoid just feeling any sense of loss or grief. So to hide the pain and the grief, we just rebound, hoping to kind of mask and cover up our pain. And usually, as we all know, there's always a warning about rebounds because we all know that rebounds usually go badly. So skipping out on pain And just trying to mask it by jumping into the next situation. A rebound is never a healthy thing. Because covering up our pain and masking it does not lead to healthy relationships. Or a good job. Or a good stage of life. So how I wish we could grieve well you ever heard the expression, beating a dead horse? It's an expression that is probably just a little bit too gruesome to explain what it really means or even put a picture up on the screen. But it's pretty obvious where the saying comes from. No matter how hard and how long you beat a dead horse, it ain't never going to get up and carry you anywhere again. And in life, we use that expression because it can just be so hard to actually admit that a thing is dead. You know, all around America, there are churches of nine or 12 or 17 people. Usually, they're all people who are related to each other. And if they were honest, they haven't done a truly kingdom thing in decades. But it's just so hard to admit that a thing is dead. There are organizations that started out with really noble ideals and noble causes, but time has just relentlessly worn down the sharp edge of that once noble cause, and everybody's weary, and everybody's ineffective, but they keep plugging on because it's just so hard to admit There are buildings sitting empty in our cities and they have broken windows and crumbling walls. But if someone comes along and says, you know what, it's time to tear that building down and build something new. Inevitably, some committee will form and it will be called the committee to save the fill in the blank. Because after all, it's a bit of history, isn't it? It's just so hard to admit that a thing is dead. Because admitting it causes us to confess that a thing is gone and that its time has come and that its life and its purpose is over. Because that means grief. And who wants to grieve? So we'll keep the building and we'll put a plaque on it, a plaque that will rust away and we'll let the next generation deal with it. How I wish that we could just grieve well. Grief is the emotion that comes with loss, and it can be any loss, any loss. Grief is the emotion that is attached to loss, because when we lose something, there's now a hole in our lives, and it doesn't even have to be a bad experience that we go through, Sometimes that loss that we're experiencing comes to us because a really, really good thing has happened. Maybe you get a promotion, for example, and it's a promotion that you've been working for for years and you've wanted it and you finally get that promotion. But it means packing up your house and moving into a new city in a new state and it's exciting and you can't wait for it. But at the same time, that also means leaving behind the city where your parents and your grandparents are buried and the home where your kids were born and the church where you were married and where you built some very deep friendships. And it is not a bad thing at all to pursue that kind of a dream and a promotion, but it does come with loss. And any loss makes a hole in our lives. And there's an emotion of grief attached to that hole. Or maybe maybe your kids have all grown up, grown up, and they're all doing exceptionally well, and now there are grandkids, and there is nothing in that that is worth lamenting at all. It's just all joy. But one day you're in your crawl space in the attic crawling around trying to figure out why this one particular outlet isn't working. And you find an old box of Spider-Man comics. And you sit in the dark in your attic, remembering when you and your son would look forward to each new issue that would arrive in the mail, and he would read it first, and then you. And even though there's so much joy that has come from his growing up, you suddenly realize, sitting in the dark of your attic, that there is a stage of life that is gone and it is not coming back ever. Grief is the emotion that gets attached to loss, any kind of loss. And every single emotion that you and I feel, every emotion comes with a jolt of energy. That's what an emotion really is. It's kind of a jolt of energy, which is why we laugh or cry or smile or frown or giggle or chuckle or cover our faces or raise our hands or bite our fingernails or get chatty. Emotion is simply energy. And to grieve well means you give direction to that emotion attached to loss. To grieve well means you give direction to the emotion that's attached to loss. Because if you do not give direction to that emotion, it will go somewhere in its own direction, which is why bitterness, for example, is sometimes an option for people. It's where our emotion takes us. So you give it direction. You give direction to the emotion of loss, to your grieving. That's what the author of Lamentations is doing. He's really giving direction. He's giving focus to the grief that that whole nation experiencing is experiencing. I don't know if you know this, but maybe you can tell it just by looking at your Bibles if you've opened them up to Lamentations. Lamentations is actually a Hebrew poem. In fact, in some ways, it's, it's actually quite a beautiful poem, which is a really important idea. If you can accept the fact that anything connected to grief can still be beautiful... But it's amazing, really. It's amazing how this author takes the horrendous pain that they were experiencing, and he actually makes something quite beautiful out of it. In fact, I want to show you this. If you have your Bibles open, I want, you, I want to show you something. So just kind of take a look at your Bibles. Look at chapter 1 in Lamentations. How many verses are there in chapter 1? 22, right? So look at chapter 2. How many verses are there in chapter 2? 22, right? Now we're going to skip chapter 3. We'll come back to it in a minute, but go to chapter 4. How many verses are there in chapter 4? 22. Look at chapter 5. How many verses are there in chapter 5? 22. Now, there's obviously something going on there, right? Something that because we're not Hebrew readers or Hebrew speakers, we actually miss what's going on here. So stick with me on this. The Hebrew alphabet has exactly how many letters? 22. The same number of verses... In each of those chapters, 1, 2, 4, and 5. Each of those chapters, 1, 2, 4, and 5, they're all what we call acrostics. And I think you probably know what an acrostic is. It's when you take a word and you kind of use the first letter of the word to make different sentences. So in chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5, each of those chapters is actually an acrostic that uses the letters of the Hebrew alphabet starting with the first letter, and then every stanza uses the next letter in the alphabet all the way to the end. Like verse 1 of chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5, verse 1 uses the Hebrew letter aleph to start the first word. Verse 2 uses bait, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So that's what they do all the way through. So, Hopefully you kind of get that and understand what they're doing. Chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5 are acrostics using the Hebrew alphabet. We would say A to Z, Aleph to Tab. Now there's a couple reasons that the author does that, and some of them obviously are very practical. One of them might be just to be clever, I suppose. The second reason is whenever the, the author of a poem uses an acrostic like that, it's obviously meant to help us with memory. Because 2,500 years ago, people didn't carry around books or iPhones. They had to remember what was being written if they wanted to have it in their brains at all. So this is just a memory device. But thirdly, and I think this is by far most important, when a Hebrew author takes the alphabet and he writes from A to Z, it was his way of saying that this package is now finished it's completed. So we do the same thing. Do you know how sometimes we use the phrase we might say, well, you know, from A to Z. Or we might say, for example, hey, that zoo had every animal from aardvarks to zebras, A to Z. It had all the animals in between. Sometimes we do this, even in English, we use A to Z to say the same thing. It has just everything. The Bible actually does the exact same thing. It's not just our culture, but the cultures of the Bible do do the same thing. For example, some of you know that sometimes Jesus, particularly in the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega, which is using the Greek letters Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, to say that Jesus is A to Z, that Jesus is the beginning and the end of history and really everything in between. So they use it, other cultures use it to say, this is the whole package, A to Z. So you with me? I have no idea if you are or not, but I'm trusting that you are, that you get it. So in Hebrew, when a poem is written with this Hebrew alphabet acrostic like this, when it uses all the Hebrew letters from Aleph to Tav, It's a way of saying that this package is now completed. It's now finished. Now, the message is not that grief is over. It's not saying that it's done with and it's not trying to convince you, well, if you still feel sad, then there's something wrong with you. The message is, we've now taken the emotion of loss, which was previously chaotic and leading us down some wrong paths. We've now taken the emotion of loss. We've taken grief and we have put it in a healthy package. And here it is. Here's the package. So read it and say it and know it. And put it in your hearts and your minds and your souls and remember it. And that's a very healthy and a very good and a very godly thing to do. I think that there's a whole lot of us that would benefit right now from taking the time to take our emotions of loss and to point them in the right direction in a healthy way and to do exactly what the author of Lamentations did. I think some of us would benefit from taking our experience of loss And writing it down and just writing down what we're feeling and thinking. Write a letter to somebody or sit down maybe and make a video. Just talk about what it is that you've lost. Let people know what you're missing and what's lost in your lives. I've been thinking when we finally get a chance to get back together, it might be good to take a little bit of time and give people just a chance to express how much was lost to them and what it means. No, I know. Look. I know that like you, like me, I know that a bunch of us are Pennsylvania Dutch. And I know that Pennsylvania Dutch means that when God was handing out emotions, those of us who are Pennsylvania Dutch, we were in line over at the pot pie counter. And so we missed out on this whole emotion thing. We, we didn't get them. Or so we think. But even us Pennsylvania Dutch folk, we are wired for emotion. All of us are. All of us are. And that's a really good thing when you think about it. Who would want to skip out on the euphoria that you experience from falling in love? Or who would want to miss out on the joy? of watching some young child smile from ear to ear when she finally masters riding a bicycle without her training wheels, whether it's your child or the neighbor down the street, who would want to miss out on the joy of watching that smile? Or who would want to miss out on that pure exhilaration of watching the Eagles win their first Super Bowl? God gave us this gift of emotion for exactly moments like that. But then there's the flip side. There, there are the emotions that we so wish we could avoid, and so we try to. We just try to pretend they're not there. All of those emotions that get attached to loss. And if you do not point those emotions in the right direction, a healthy direction, bad things will happen. Bitterness, anger, anxiety, overwhelming fear, unhealthy rebounds, beating a dead horse. So direct those emotions that get attached to loss. Say them. Write them down. Maybe you can find a way to package them in the same way the author of Lamentations did. The same way he packaged his words and his emotions in words. maybe you can find a way to package your grief in the same kind of way. Maybe, for example, maybe right outside your front door or your back door, maybe you could plant a little bit of a garden, maybe, I don't know, and write down your emotions and maybe not in an effort to bury them and pretend they don't exist, but maybe you can write them down and grieve and just put them in the ground and in front of them Plant a little garden and put your favorite flower in, or maybe put the favorite flower in it of somebody you're missing. Some kind of a symbol of something that you're missing, and it will be there. Every year it'll be there, and it'll bloom next spring, and it will be beautiful, and it will be be a reminder every single spring of a choice that you made during the pandemic of 2020 to take your loss, and make something beautiful out of it, and it can be done. It can be done. To take the emotion of loss and direct them and point them in healthy ways. Now, there there is chapter three. We skipped that one. We talked about one, two, four, and five, but there's chapter three. So, you know, again, if you've got your Bible open, take a look at chapter 3 for a couple seconds. Now, chapter 3 is obviously the center chapter. Chapter 3 has two chapters on each side of it, 1 and 2 and 4 and 5. Take a quick look at how many verses there are in chapter 3. There's 66, right? And for those of you who are not math majors, 66 is 3 times... So chapter 3 has three times the verses of every other chapter. Now chapter 3, just like 1, 2, 4, and 5, chapter 3 is also an acrostic using the same Hebrew alphabet. But instead of assigning one line to every letter, chapter 3 assigns three letters, three sentences to every Hebrew letter. It's very clever, because what the author is doing is he's saying, look, right smack in the middle, chapter three, three verses to every letter, he's saying, look, this is the center chapter. This is the one that's most important. This is the one I don't want you to miss. And get this, right smack in the middle of chapter three, the center of this book, right there in the center, are the very few positive sentences in this entire book. When you read through Lamentations, chapter 1, 2, 4, and 5, and even most of chapter 3, this book is a description of overwhelming grief and terrible loss and very deep darkness. But right there in the center, all of a sudden, We readers get ambushed by light. Let me read some of these sentences to you. I'm going to start reading in verse 19. The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I'll never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. And yet, I will still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh every morning. And so I say to myself the Lord is my inheritance therefore I will hope in him And you can keep reading if you take the time to read this on your own and you should because it goes on like that for the next couple of verses you may want to find the quiet time and read this chapter for yourself. But there is this one really, really interesting verse. It's verse 29 of chapter 3. In fact, this one sentence is just terribly troubling for translators. They struggle with it. And you'll understand why it's such a struggle. In fact, this verse, by the way, is the reason for the background picture I'm using in all my slides. Verse 29, chapter 3, says this. Let them... That's the people who grieve. Let them lie face down in the dust, for there may be hope at last. Now that's an odd place to find hope, isn't it? Lying face down in the dust. This is just so important, so hang in there with me what the author is telling us is that sometimes what our grief reveals to us is that we have had false hopes all along. And sometimes what comes from grief and loss is that it shows us that we have been hoping in wrong things all along. I was watching an interview just this last week, maybe a week, more than a week ago, with an aging Hollywood actress. Frankly, I didn't know who she was. I can't remember her name, and I didn't have the time to go back out and, back and find the interview again. But what I remember is she talked really painfully about how hard it is to be a woman in Hollywood because she said, you know, you get just a few years when the world finds you attractive. And then she said, of course, there's the next beautiful crop of young things and then the next, and then the next. And this actress told a very sad tale of trying desperately to hang on to her beauty with surgeons and shots and personal trainers. But she said what we all know to be true, it just ain't gonna work forever. And she told a very sad tale of having to decide eventually that you have to to either become comfortable with starting to play the, the role of mothers and grandmothers or you quit. And she quit. And then she chuckled and said this, having to put all your hope in beauty is a terribly depressing thing. Having to put all your hope in beauty is a terribly depressing thing. And sometimes what grief shows us is that all of our hope has been placed in the wrong thing all along. And sometimes it's only when our face is in the dust that we remember where our real hope is. Now, don't get me wrong, I have tremendous hope in our doctors and in our scientists. I'm hoping for a fix, and I know it's going to come. And I'm hoping for a revived economy, and I'm hoping that we'll get back to work sooner rather than later. And I'm hoping that the homes where so many of our seniors are right now living and suffering as this virus expands in home. I'm hoping that it will be solved for them. And I'm hoping for vacations, and I'm hoping for hugs, and I'm hoping for a church that will someday be filled with people again. And it will be, and we'll get there. But none of those are a forever fix for what really ails us, right? And I think that's why Paul, when Paul wrote a letter to some friends of his who had lost people that they loved to the grave, Paul said, We do not grieve like people who have no hope, for we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again. And sometimes it's our grief that shows us that our hope has been in the wrong things all along. We do not grieve like people who have no hope, for we believe that Jesus was raised to life. And then, and then. So let me pray. God, in the midst of a time that's filled with so much loss and heartbreak, God, I pray that you'd be helping us to direct our grief in healthy ways, to find ways to say that we won't give into bitterness and anger and anxiety and fear, but help us, God, to package it and to say it in ways that are healthy. God, I pray ultimately that we'd remember that as as hopeful as we are in doctors and scientists and the return to normal, as important as that is, and it is for sure, help us to remember that ultimately our hope is in a Savior who conquered sin and death. I pray, God, that that would build in us a sense of knowing that there is not a thing that can touch us, no virus will defeat us ever. I pray, God, we find hope in that now and forever. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Hey, wherever you are, stand with us. We want to sing one more song reminding us of where our hope
2: comes from. La, 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 la.
0: Yours will be the only name that matters to me. The only one whose favor I seek. The only name that matters to me. Yours will be the friendship and affection I need. To feel my father smiling on me. The only name that matters to me. And yours is the name, the name that saved me Mercy and grace and the power that forgave me And your love is all I've ever needed Yours will be the only name that matters to me The only one whose favor I seek The only name that matters to me and yours is the name the name that saved me mercy and grace and the power that forgave me and your love is all i've ever needed when i wake up in the land of glory with the saints, i will tell my story there will be one name that i proclaim When I wake up in the land of glory, with the saints I will tell my story, there will be one name that I proclaim. Sing La La
2: La 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 La
0: Jesus, Jesus, Jesus,
2: just that name. Jesus, Jesus,
0: Jesus, Jesus, just that name when i wake up in the land of glory with the saints i will tell my story there will be one name that i proclaim when i wake up in the land of glory
2: La la la. la.
1: may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his face to you and be gracious. May the Lord's face shine on you and give you peace. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Horizon Church, please go to the website at horizonconnect.org. Have a great week.